So good evening. You have been here now about 27 and a half hours. Does it feel longer than that? Like you've been here all your life and you can't remember anything else? That's not uncommon. Time has a funny way of playing tricks with us on retreat. This may seem like the longest day of your life, like a really long trip on a jetliner to Asia or something. So the movie playing tonight is called Dharma Talk. And um, I'm, a li- I'm in a little bit of a strange state. I, I got so excited today. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't get my nap in. So I'm a little bit tired and a little bit wired. So we'll see where that goes. So um, I thought it would be good to start, I'd like to start with going back to the inquiry this afternoon and ask you some questions about your experience. I thought it would be interesting for all of us to hear a little more. Um, So I'm going to ask you some questions if you don't mind. Some of them are just raising your hand kinds of questions. So the first is that. The question is, in doing that exercise of looking at attitudes towards aging, how many of you feel you have internalized some of the culture's negative views of being older? Wow, look at that. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very big impact. Second question. How many of you recog- have recognized or recognized in the exercise some degree of fear about aging? Wow. So this is, this is good because one of the ways that fear survives is by us not acknowledging it, not recognizing it, or um, kind of, you know, it's like the boogeyman in the closet. You have to open the closet and shine the light and look in there and see. So what are, let's just name some of, what are some of the fears that go on around aging? Is it fear of the unknown? fear of being alone, of being destitute, of being unloved? What are some of the fears? Can you just name them in a word or two out loud? Dead. Huh? Dead. Dead. Well, that's... Yeah, okay, fear of death. Physical pain. Loss of independence. Dementia. Loss of friends. friends. Social isolation. Uncertainty. Uncertainty. Helplessness. Helplessness. Not enough money. money. Especially if we're going to live so long. (laughs) Getting what? Small and ugly. ugly. That's possible. What else? Incontinent. Incontinent. Yeah. 
What else? Dementia. Dementia. Huh? Oh, buried by the grief of loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Loss of sensory, uh, like vision and hearing. You mean those kinds of things? Immobility. Immobility. Mm-hmm. Well, that's quite a list. Yeah. And almost everybody here is dealing with one or at least one of them, if not multiple ones. So just to acknowledge that, that this is this is part of the, the territory that we are opening ourselves to looking at. What the Buddha called unwanted experiences. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. Life contains unwanted experiences and aging is one of them. Okay, another question. How many of you were unex- were unexpectedly surprised by some of the uh, I don't think I'm saying this right. How many were pleasantly surprised by some of some of what you are experiencing as you age? Something more in the pleasant realm. Yes. Huh? Oh yes, that you were. So great. And let's name some of those things. <laughs> what could some of those be? Freedom from work. Freedom from work. Greater happiness. Greater happiness. Who knew? Wisdom. Wisdom. Having grandchildren. Having grandchildren. Backpacking. Huh? It's not as bad as you imagined. Turning off the alarm clock. Turning off the alarm clock. Ooh. Lacking the need to compete. I'm still standing. I'm still standing. <laughs> yes, good on you. Say this, what did you say? Lacking the need to compete. Lacking the need to compete. Yes. Time and opportunity to do service. Lovely. Non attachment. Time alone. And we can all recognize, perhaps, have experienced at least one or two of these. So it's a mixed bag, huh? How many of you have felt in this aging process supported by your Dharma practice? Yes. And that probably is in part what brought you on this retreat. You recognize that Dharma practice gives us something. And so we're going to look a little tonight at what that is. What does Dharma practice give us? How does it help us? I know it certainly helped me. I would, can't imagine doing old age without Dharma. 
really, really, really. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a story about uh, some of the people that the Buddha worked with when he was teaching. You know, he just was out in the open and anybody could come to him. Anybody could come and ask him a question or, you know. So he got some interesting cases to work on. So I wanted to start tonight by telling you uh, the case of a man named Yasa, who was a somewhat wealthy guy. He loved to have big parties and stay up all night and evidently did a fair amount of that. But at the end of one long night of partying, he had a panic attack out of the blue. He had a panic attack. Anybody here ever have a panic attack? Yeah, it's a kind of surprising event, isn't it? You know, you're just out of the blue, there you are, panic. So, he didn't know what to do. He was freaking out, and somebody suggested that he go see the Buddha. So he he did. He, he went as early as he could. Uh, the Buddha was just getting up, and he ran and said, Oh, it's... It is fearful, it is horrible, it is fearful, it is horrible. He was in a real state. Now the Buddha saw the man coming and saw his panic, and because he was a pretty intuitive person, he had the sense that he could help this person. So he calmly replied, Yasa, this is not fearful. This is not horrible. Come, I will teach you the Dharma. So Yasa was relieved to hear these words. And in the presence of the Buddha, this this great presence of calmness and peace, I guess he picked up on some of that energy and felt almost immediately relieved. So he said to himself, this is not fearful, it seems. This is not horrible. And he was happy and hopeful at the thought that there was some help, you know, there was something coming to him that would show him another view of the situation. So he, it is said he sat by the Buddha who laid out the teachings and eventually, uh, or or essentially what the Buddha helped Yasa with, with was to reorient him to teach him an attitude toward the world that was not frightened or panicked or judgmental, but was rather hopeful and realistic. He kind of turned Yasa's head around, we could say. In short, he instructed Yasa in what is called right view. This is not fearful. This is not horrible, this life. There is a way to be peaceful and free. The Buddha also, you know, taught this, this teaching called the Four Noble Truths where he, he said life is suffering. There is suffering in life. We must look at that. We must encounter that. We must come to terms with the fact of suffering, of discontent, of of disease, of not being at peace within oneself. Uh, 
This is the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. But the Four Noble Truths, we sometimes forget or don't hear the weight of it being given to the possibility of liberation. We hear the stuff about suffering. Oh yeah, we know that one really well, but we sort of forget that it's also about liberation, about life that is not fearful, that is not horrible, but holds within it this great potential for freedom, for happiness, for peace. There is a cause of suffering which when we understand goes a long way to helping us find this liberating quality. The first noble truth of the truth of suffering, the second, the cause of suffering, and the third, the, the liberative understanding that frees us from suffering. And the fourth, a path of practice that we can develop. So we have in these four noble truths a treasury of insight into life and how to engage with our own challenges, with our own difficulties. In short, it is a teaching that says when something really bad happens and that really bad things do happen, we don't have to remain a victim of the fear, of the horror, of the sense of helplessness or panic, but that we can cultivate a relationship with suffering, with unwanted experience that is liberating rather than fear-provoking. What this requires is the recognition that we have within us this capacity, this capacity of the mind and the heart to accommodate difficult experiences. The mind has a very great capacity that largely goes unnoticed until something happens or we come on a retreat and we begin to sense new potentials inside of ourselves. I'm pretty sure that many of you in this room have felt that at times on retreat, that there is some potential here, there's some uh, greater capacity that I have in my very own heart and mind that begins to surface in retreat, begins to come out, we begin to sense it. And we very much encourage you to sense into that. What is it that is right here, right now, always with you, that you can begin to access as a tremendous resource? Jane Hirschfield, (laughs) wonderful poet and Zen practitioner, uh, wrote a poem somewhere um, where she says, even and this was written like after her years of Zen practice, and she says, even now, decades after, I wash my face with cold water, not for discipline nor memory, nor the icy awakening slap, but to practice, but to practice 
choosing to make the unwanted wanted. It's like this is a practice that we can do, beginning perhaps with small things, being a little bit uncomfortable and being patient about that, or being hungry and not having food right away and learning to be patient with that. We lear- So learning to be with difficult experiences, unwanted experiences, begins like going to the gym with the, with, the, with the smaller things. It doesn't begin with the lifting the heavy weights of, you know, how can I um, deal with the uh, fracking that's going on in my, you know, next door neighbor's yard or something like that. You know, we begin to learn how to meet our suffering moment to moment with things that are seem doable, that seem manageable, where we begin to sense in, in ourselves this capacity for opening and for being with things that are, are unwanted, are difficult. And certainly aging is one of the things that we could say is an unwanted experience of human life. But what are the, what are the uh, options? You know, you have to look at it that way as well. Well, you get to be old, or you get to die early. Or you get to be ill for many years. So these are all, you know, the illness, aging, and death are called the heavenly messengers. Based on the story of the Buddha, when he left his comfortable home and went out to... uh, seek a life of um, practice and, and being a homeless wanderer, learning the spiritual arts that were taught at that time. And he encountered the heavenly messengers. What were they? The sight of a very old person, very, very, very old and frail or the sight of um, a very sick person, and then the sight of a corpse. Any of these can startle us awake in a way that in the Buddhist tradition is considered to be a good thing. It wakes us up. Wakes us up out of what? Out of our dream of permanence, of immortality, of uh, being healthy forever, and, you know, not dying. We're all in a little bit of a trance of, you know, thinking, oh yeah, those things will happen, but... (laughs) You know where that is, out there somewhere, or further down the road. We don't really believe they will happen to us. So, so this is one story um, that points to this understanding that, yes, these things are present in life and they are what we could call workable. We can come into a relationship with illness, with aging, with dying, that is based in the heart's capacity to open itself, to be 
courageous to touch our experience with kindness and gentleness. So this is, this is called right view, this understanding that we don't need to be victims of life, we don't need to be, um, we don't need to make it into something fearful and horrible, but that we can learn how to be with even that which is difficult. So right view acts as a kind of antidote and corrective to many of the prevailing views in our culture uh, that, that we encounter, the views about um, somebody old. You know, we've, we've looked in the past day or two at, you know, how much there is about being old that is negative. We've seen how fearful we can, what comes up in us when we see a really old person. You know, I I have taken it on myself as a practice because, one, I haven't been around that many really old people, and two, because of the general, you know, thing about old people in our culture, I have really said to myself in the last five years, stop, look, open to this person being old. Let it in, in. don't shut it out. So I can tell you some moments of that, of doing that, and it really was, it was like meeting a heavenly messenger. One was an old man, right down here in Fairfax, who was out one morning with his walker. I I don't know who he was or where he was going, where he came from, why he was out there all by himself is a good question. Because he was moving up the sidewalk so slowly. So slowly. But he was steady and determined, and he just kept going moment to moment. I thought, wow. You know, that's, a, that's admirable. What courage does that take? Another moment was at the airport with the, um, going through the security checkpoint. Um, there was a, quite an old woman. I think they are changing their policies on old people, but at this time they didn't have any special treatment for old people. And this woman, they kept, saying things to her. She was a little ahead of me. She must have been 98 or something. And she didn't understand what was expected of her. So it was so really touching. She was taking everything out of her handbag and putting it on the belt. I think she thought that's what they wanted her to do. You know, and they... and, And so I just... My heart opened. I went up to her and I said, look, let's do this together. <laughs> and helped her sort it out. But it was just one of those moments of, oh my goodness, you know, here's somebody who, this, this task is not what, something that she can handle, really. And nobody was really helping her either. So we all have these moments. Maybe for you it's 
around seeing a corpse for the first time. That can be a very striking experience, seeing somebody who's dead. This is another one of those messengers that's like, wow, this is what, this is what goes, this is it, this is reality. Let's not fool ourselves. So right view is this capacity we have to see what is true. And the Buddha over and over pointed to right view as something that is like the first and last most important thing in our practice. Well, he did say it, and I would like to to read what he said, but I am I don't know if I have it here. Uh, maybe I didn't bring it. Oh, too bad. Um, so it's the understanding that in order to practice Dharma, the view of the Four Noble Truths the capacity to open to experiences that are difficult, but to hold them with this sense of compassion and wisdom that doesn't freak out about them, that doesn't feel overwhelmed, that doesn't feel victimized. This is right view. And it includes very much that we see through the illusion of permanence. We see through the illusion of me and mine. We see through the illusion of taking things that appear to be happy that are actually a cause of suffering. So it is a deep understanding that evolves as we practice. It is not something that we just read about and understand conceptually, but that we actually practice with these truths until they become part of our capacity to see clearly. So many times people are shocked when somebody dies. Robert was telling us at tea about a, a man he, he was working with, 83-year-old man whose wife had died. The man was completely, like, amazed that his wife had died. I guess he just had never considered that possibility. Or I, I, there's a story a student of mine told, told me about her father, who had been a very hard-charging CEO of a Texas oil company, very accomplished guy, and suddenly he's on his deathbed. And he kept saying to his daughter, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? As if death was some kind of huge mistake. This would be called wrong view. It's just not seeing clearly that this is the way it is. 
The Buddha gave a reflection that he said we should do every day. They're called the five reflections. I'd like to just read them to you, and I'm going to make copies of this for you. He said this is a worthy thing to do every day, to reflect on these five reflections. I am of the nature to age. Aging is unavoidable. I am of the nature to have ill health. Ill health is unavoidable. I am of the nature to die. Death is unavoidable. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. Separating from them is inevitable. My thoughts and words and deeds are my only true belongings. My thoughts and words and deeds are my only true belongings. The results of my thoughts and words and deeds are inescapable. So that is, the, that is right view, right there, said very succinctly. This is what we can take in, we can align ourselves with. I've always found it interesting that the first teaching the Buddha gave after his awakening was not on the amazing, you know, bliss of his awakening and his experience of all these different realms of consciousness and his seeing into past lives and all this stuff that went on for him during that experience. You know, when people asked him about what he what had happened to him, because they could see he was kind of glowing and quite you know amazing just to be in his presence he didn't talk about any of that he didn't or he didn't you know he didn't go into his big story well i was this prince and i had this father who was really hard on me and my wife had a child and it all got to be too much and i left the pal he didn't do any of that he didn't do any of that instead he he went and he gave his first dharma talk on the four noble truths He said, look, this is something, this is how you find what I found, by contemplating these truths and taking them in, meeting them directly in your own experience. And what the Buddha laid out is not completely obvious. It's somewhat counterintuitive that by embracing our suffering, we free ourselves from it. That's not at all apparent to us, is it? What? Embrace my fear? That's crazy. I should try to get rid of it. I should try to avoid it. I should try to arrange my life so I I don't feel fear. You know, we go through all the other possible scenarios. We don't think that actually turning and meeting our fear is going to be the thing that is the catalyst for actually helping us free ourselves. So this is part of our practice. 
right view, I hope I am communicating this, is really about, in part it's about the sense of confidence that we can meet these difficult experiences and that when we meet them we can grow from them, we can learn from them, we can become freer and more courageous and more peaceful. Another story uh, of a person who encountered the Buddha I'd like to share with you tonight. It's a story of a woman named Padachara, and it appears in this, this, this is a lovely book if you haven't seen it, an, a book of um, women's teaching stories through the ages, put together by Sue Moon and Florence Kaplow. And um, they asked different teachers, including myself, to write commentaries on some of these stories. So the one I chose was this story about Padachara, and I'd like to read her story and what, what she brought to the Buddha and how he, how he helped her. Because it really speaks of this uh, way of, of um, understanding right view. So in a single day, Padachara experienced the deaths of her whole family. Her husband was bitten by a poisonous snake. Her newborn child was carried off by a hawk. Her older child drowned in a river. And her brother, mother, and father were killed when their house collapsed. One day. Mad with grief, she tore off her clothes and wandered naked in circles for a long time until she stumbled into the place where the Buddha was teaching. The monks wanted to send her away, but the Buddha stopped them and said to her, Sister, recover your presence of mind. That's what he said to her. Sister, recover your presence of mind. At his words, she regained her sanity. A man threw her his cloak, and she covered herself. She told the Buddha of her tragedies and begged him, begged him to help her. He said, I cannot help you. Now, we don't think of the Buddha ever saying that, do we? I can't help you. And if the Buddha can't help you, who can? He said, For countless lives you have wept for loved ones. Your tears could fill the four oceans. But no one can be a secure hiding place from suffering. Knowing this, a wise person walks the path of awakening. What was her response to this? His words eased her mind. How could that be? His words eased her mind? I can't help you? But for some reason, perhaps it opened something in her to see another possibility. Because, then the story goes, she ordained and practiced diligently And one day she saw into the nature of impermanence and a vision of the Buddha appeared before her. 
He said, Patachara, all human beings die. It is better to see the truth of impermanence even for just a moment than to live for a hundred years and not know it. Patachara awakened and became the greatest of the women teachers in the Buddha's Sangha. So that story encapsulates a lot of what this teaching of right view is about. That even when the worst happens, there's some sort of possibility. Even though we cannot contact it, we cannot see it, we cannot even imagine it. Mark Epstein uh, is a wonderful author, Buddha, Buddhist practitioner and author. He's, his book, um, The Trauma of Everyday Life, sort of goes very extensively into this teaching on right view. It's a very good book. And in that book he describes a patient that he's also a psychiatrist. He works with people and he described uh, a patient he was working with who was feeling very desperate. She said, I feel like a person alone in a sailboat in the middle of the ocean clinging for dear life to the mast. It's too much. I can't hang on any longer. I don't know what else to do. Her tone was urgent. She was close to sobbing. Epstein found these words popping out of his mouth. But you're the ocean as well. But you are the ocean as well. Evidently this was just the reminder she needed. It had a tremendous impact. She had forgotten her essential embeddedness in this larger reality, in this boundless presence, you could say. Or as Leonard Cohen put it, if you don't become the ocean, you'll be seasick every day. (laughs) When we imagine that we're this separate little struggling entity, you know, doing battle with the whole ocean, we're going to be seasick. But when we can remember the larger presence of which we are, in which we are embedded and of which we are a part, we, we are no longer seasick. We can hold all these experiences in a much different way. So this understanding of working with difficulty comes very much out of the Buddha's um, deep understanding of this potential of the mind for cultivating these amazing qualities of consciousness, qualities of wisdom and compassion and love and kindness and equanimity and patience and generosity. These are beautiful qualities of the heart and mind which we can develop and when we do we are much better equipped to meet the difficulties in life. The Buddha said, no other thing do I know which brings so much suffering 
as an uncultivated and undeveloped mind. No other thing do I know which brings so much happiness as a cultivated and developed mind. There's a beautiful saying, who is my enemy? Who is my friend? My mind is my enemy. My mind is my friend. So we see this in our practice. At times our mind seems like the enemy. And then as we learn to work with it, it becomes more and more friendly. We learn that the mind is also our greatest ally, our greatest resource when we have cultivated it, when we have developed the wholesome qualities that are there waiting for our attention. So then this teaching becomes very apparent when uh, something happens, some illness strikes, something difficult arises. The Buddha was out visiting a a man, a layperson who was ill. And the, the, the layperson asked for the Buddha's advice. And the, the, the Buddha's advice to him was this. He said, Householder, though your body is sick, let not your mind be sick. Thus you should train yourself. Though the body is sick, let not the mind be sick. A mind that is not sick, what is that? What is that, a mind that is not sick, even though the body is sick? We see over and over again in the suttas and the stories of the Buddha examples of this kind of approach. Yes, the body has illness, but we don't have to... um, what What is the mind's reaction to that? Achancha said, the Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and come to terms with its nature. We must be able to be at peace with the body, whatever state it is in. The Buddha taught that we should ensure that it's only the body that is locked up in jail and not let the mind be imprisoned along with it. Don't let your mind deteriorate. Give give energy to the mind by realizing the truth of the way things are. Over and over again, he encouraged this understanding that the body has its journey, but the mind has another journey. And at some point they separate. At some point they are no longer on the same journey. So we can take this in as an encouragement for cultivating the practices that we do here, the cultivating of the, the wisdom side of practice and the compassion side of practice and learning that this is such a great resource as we go forward at this stage in our lives. Oh, I was going to read a poem, but I get... You know, I'm, I'm missing some things tonight. I don't know. Sorry about that. Um, but there are some beautiful poems about people who have been 
dying, ill, but who have experienced in the process not a sense of despair and loathing and fear, but actually feelings of great happiness, feelings of having come home at last. So this understanding, I think, is an important one to hold, even as we meet experiences that seem difficult. Okay, so I think that's enough for tonight. Thank you for your listening (laughs) and your openness to this teaching. Thank you. Let's sit together for a minute. The Buddha said, neither mother, nor father, nor any other relative can do one greater good than one's own well-directed mind. Thank you. So we have about 30 minutes for some walking practice out in this cool, lovely evening. 